Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to our North community. We're glad you're with us this morning. Can you remember a day where Netflix didn't exist in your life? Can you even remember such a thing? It's amazing how that corporation and that entertainment unit has changed the fabric of society. What are you watching these days if you are a Netflix junkie? What are you binge watching is I think the new word. When I was uh, with my wife, my wife perpetually for years tried to get me to watch Downton Abbey. I refused. I wanted nothing to do with it. And then when I was in sabbatical and had some time to rest and reflect, I discovered the binging beauty of Downton Abbey and I could not get out. I, I tried, I'm sorry, gentlemen. I tried so much, but I was upstairs and downstairs and everywhere. It's uh, amazing, though, with Netflix, what's happened. What is the brilliance of Netflix? Netflix says to you as an individual, not as a family, not as a community, not as an ethnic group, to you as an individual, what do you want to watch? Let us make a niche market just for you. No advertisement, just you can binge and binge and binge to your heart's content. It's interesting talking to my children. They don't understand what television is anymore. Why do I need to wait for another episode? Why is it not already available for me to touch on the screen. I knew things were changing when my son kept going to the television thinking it was an iPad and it wasn't working. (laughs) Netflix has changed the world. It's what Starbucks did for coffee. Genuinely, they came in and said, what do you want as an individual? I want a tall, non-fat, 180-degree flat white. By the way, that is my order if you want to bless the pastor this month. Uh, So, I mean, that is the brilliance of them. They say, to you as an individual, what do you want? And the truth that has emerged, especially in Western culture, is that consumerism has become you-centric in a way we have never experienced in human history. And at the same time, something else has taken place. I've talked about it before. The epicness, to use that word today, what I used to call awesome, what people before called me dope, which is pretty bad, or in the 70s, what was radical, whatever word you used in your generation. When you look at movies especially, the epic quality, the stunning quality of what we consume on a regular basis is getting better and better to the point that the unbelievable is now normal. It's like going back and watching the first Jurassic Park and going, we were stunned by that. It looks like claymation compared to what we have today. Now, what's interesting about this is as we now come as a people of faith in a culture that is full of money and has made you-centricness in a way we've never discovered and the epic normalcy of entertainment, is there anything that truly could pierce or inspire a culture that is used to this? Let me use this old word, radical. Is there something so genuinely extreme and drastic that it could actually pierce the mentality of a eucentric world and an epic normalcy that we consume all the time. Well, it's interesting when you use the word radical, you tend to mean extreme, but the original root of the word radical actually meant going back to your roots. And what I want to say, I want to propose, I want to preach, what, what I want to proclaim actually today is that yes, There has been something here for 2,000 years 
that actually is stronger and more profound than what I just said. Week three, we're in the book of Acts. Two weeks ago, if you were with us, we began in Acts 1. The spirit move that Jesus had promised had begun. Jesus, who had been executed, rises from the dead, and he says to his followers when he rises from the dead, you wait in Jerusalem because I am about to give you something. And it reads like this in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit enlightens upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. And so this group of people prayed and waited. Jesus went into heaven. And then as Jesus had promised, as the Father had predicted in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to this whole group of people. And they began to speak in languages they did not know proclaiming God. A crowd gathered around them, heard them speaking in their own mother tongues and languages. And all of them in this crowd were Orthodox Jews or converts to Judaism in Jerusalem for the religious festival of Pentecost, and they were nothing but shocked. It was a radical, extreme, dramatic moment that broke the average experience. Some of the crowd said, this is obviously of God. Others said, I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. Other people mocked them and said, you've had too many tequila shots before 9 a.m., Peter stands up and he begins to speak, a grade two educated Galilean fisherman, and he preaches the very first Christian sermon in history, and in that moment, the Spirit of God moved again. Day one, within the first hour of the church being born, Peter preaches with crystal clarity what the heart of the Christian message is, and he did it always and through and under the power of the Spirit. Do you remember the summary of Peter's message? Here it is. Peter stood up and said that Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament, that Jesus was a real man and his life was marked by miracles. Jesus was really around and he was really crucified by Romans and condemned by both Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. Then he declared this wild thing that it was God's plan all along that Jesus had that horrific death. And then he proclaimed that Jesus was physically risen from the dead, that Jesus is king, Jesus is at the right hand of Yahweh, God himself, and Jesus is reigning over every human being, whether they believe it or not. And then Peter, within the first few moments of the inception of the church, declares that all people are in sin, we are all corrupt, and even the most religious Orthodox Jew, let alone any other religious person on earth, they're guilty as much as some pagan is. We all need a savior, and Jesus is his name, And then Peter keeps going, he says, Jesus is not just a man, but he is God in flesh, and that is because since he is God in flesh, he's the only Savior. And then Peter declared, if you accept Jesus through repentance, turning, and faith, informed trust, you will get the greatest gift a human being can ever get, it is the Holy Spirit. You'll be forgiven your sins, you can join God's real family, no matter your history, gender, skin color, or background, and you need to go public with baptism to put the wedding ring on to declare that you're now in a new love relationship. Peter basically preached God is holy, God is love, God has not remained silent, God has reached out, God can be known, and everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus can be saved. See, that's not just good news, that's the great news, day one, hour one. Now... In that moment when Peter begins to preach, if you were with us last week or you know the book of Acts, what happens? Many believed and many were filled and many were baptized. It says within the first five hours of the church, 3,000 people became Christians. A megachurch was born in a moment and they had to baptize. Do you know how long it would have taken them to baptize 3,000 people? The logistical mind of some of our staff is going, oh, okay. 
And in this moment, people from all over the Roman Empire say yes to Jesus. So what happened next? What did this roughly put together community now look like days, hours, weeks, months later? Well, this is where we land next. And if there is one passage that speaks to every single church on earth right now, if there is one passage that transcends time, culture, race, age, if there is one passage that can and must mark and define and guide and inspire each church, whether it's a mega church, a large church, a small church, whether it's a house church in China or it's a cathedral in the middle of Europe, whether it's a liturgical church using bells and smells or free, free flowing like us or something in between, it is Acts 2, 42 through 47. Now, some of you, now I just said that, are already going to Facebook because you're like, I've heard this my whole life. Stop. God is always about to speak when his scriptures are open. Are we all ready to hear afresh again? Yes or no? Okay. So here it begins. Acts 2, 42 through 47 is like a three-legged stool. And there are three legs that make up the foundation of what a local church must look like for a broken world. And if you're missing one of the legs or two of the legs, it falls over and it is not useful. And here are the three things that we see in the early church, the very first description. The person, each Christian, and the community was filled with devotion and awe and action. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling possessions and their goods they gave to any person who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God. They enjoyed the favor, not of just Christians, but all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The very first description of the early church is this. They were devoted. They devoted themselves. That means this. They were keen. They were loyal. They were dedicated. They were faithful. They were consistently committing themselves. They continued in faithful adherence to this newly formed community as they rallied around the Spirit who took them to Jesus, who took them to the Father. It took their time and their money and their priority. This was the center now of their existence. Now the devotion rallies around four actions. They were devoted, it says, to teaching, to community, to the breaking of bread, communion, and to prayer. Now the first thing that is mentioned is the apostles' teaching. It is a deep love for and a living under God's written word, what we call today the Bible. The Bible is God's ultimate authority in faith, life, and practice. Remember back to our Holy Spirit series when Jesus was telling his friends before he died that he was going to leave, and they were like, no, no, you can't leave. And then he said these words in John 14, 6, I ain't going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me is going to obey my teaching. I love this verse. My Father will love them, and we, that is Jesus and the Father, will come to you or them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They actually belong to the Father who sent me, verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, the Intercessor, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
See, the Holy Spirit is always about leading a church into all of God's written truth. It is where the living word and the written word are bound together. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where is Jesus' teaching found? Where are all the Father's words found? Where are all of God's stories and thoughts and revelations and commands and promises found? Where is the summary of the apostles' teaching? It is found in the written word of God. See, the Holy Spirit not only leads us, he teaches us. He actually is the author of the book that we read virtually or physically. There might be 66 books in the Bible, but never forget, behind all the culture and background and multiplicity of authors, there is only one author and his name is the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul, when he was mentoring young pastors, said things like this in 1 Timothy 4.16. You watch your life and you watch your doctrine closely. You persevere them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. It's the great description of actually what the Bible is. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired, breathed out. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and and correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does 2 Timothy 3.16 say to us today? The Holy Spirit will use the scriptures to teach us. He will walk in and say, this is right and this is wrong. This is correct and this is incorrect. Walk here, not there. It says that the scriptures will rebuke us. Oh, you feel and you think and you, you believe in sincerity that that issue or that idea is right. Actually, no, from heaven's view, that is wrong. Repent. He'll correct us. He says, oh, you're walking this way. Can you just walk a little that way? And he'll train us in righteousness. He'll teach us to live a different way under the grace of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, a holy life. See, the Holy Spirit always leads and points to his own book. And when the Holy Spirit's presence is strongest, like I preached in the Holy Spirit series, when there is revival and perpetual revival, when the whole church knows Jesus is truly among them, when there is a growing awe and thirst and willingness to be close to the Spirit, suddenly the awe and the thirst and the willingness to submit to, to want to read and love and live under the Scriptures goes through the roof. You will know revival is among us when people can't put their Bible down because they cannot wait to hear the lover of their soul speak to them and tell them truth. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 6, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so this is a guaranteed place of encounter between God and his people. The Holy Spirit is always present, always overshadowing, always hovering his own book because his book is not just a normal book. It's the living Word of God. The Holy Spirit will lead us and speak to us through and form us by the Bible. He's the spirit of truth. If you reject the scriptures, you end up rejecting the author, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So it's no mistake that week one, month one, day one, the very first description for the early church is teaching. The apostles' teaching because teaching is the rudder for every single church. But they didn't just make time for teaching. They weren't just sitting down reading their study Bibles and listening to another Beth Moore series. There's more much more. They also stopped and they said, we also now have a profound privilege called fellowship. Fellowship is a churchy word, but let me unpack it for you. He's basically saying this, since we as broken human beings have partnership and friendship and companionship with a holy God that we had rejected, and because of Jesus, he's inviting us in. Now we have fellowship with each other. 
This is the most amazing thing. It is the unique sharing that Christians have with God and other Christians, a community that truly transcends race and gender and money and history because of what Jesus has corporately done for us. Think about it. Day one, rich, poor, non-Jew, Jew, women, men, slave-free. The Holy Spirit produces a shocking, unnatural unity within the first few hours of the church. And we read here, it kept marking the community. You know what I'm talking about if you're a Christian and you've traveled the world and you somehow meet another Christian. You know no matter their skin color or background or educational level, there is a bond between you and that person that brings you joy because you know that you know that they're your brother and sister and you're going to spend eternity. Anyone had that experience? Fellowship. And this is this beautiful thing. But the implication of fellowship is that since God called us and we didn't call him, And since Jesus died for us while we were still an enemy, and since the Holy Spirit is nothing but a free gift, there is no room for pride in the church. Humility becomes the only starting point in every local church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we've been baptized into one spirit to form one body, whether Jew or Greek or or slave or free. We've all been given this one spirit to drink. I love Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka who wrote these words. We must help Christians perpetually understand the nature of Christian identity, which never depends on human distinctions. When people realize that they are accepted as significant and useful to the kingdom, not because of any merit of their own, but because of the mercy of God, suddenly they begin to realize they can look down on any, they cannot look down on anyone. This is what is most important about us as Christians. We are undeserving recipients of God's glorious gifts. Prejudice in all of its forms is an, is an expression of insecurity and feelings of inferiority. If we do not feel truly secure and accepted in the great work of Christ, suddenly we feel we need earthly things to make us feel important. And one of those earthly ideas is that we are superior to other people. But to someone who has understood grace and is being formed by grace and understands the great fellowship of God, such a position is an impossibility for an everyday Christian. The early church gathered and they loved the scriptures. They were producing a fellowship that wasn't even their own. And now it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. If you've done church, you might call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, Eucharist. It's when we take bread and juice or wine and obey the teachings of Jesus. Now, I want to take a moment this morning, and I want to camp here, and I don't usually do this. I want to take time so every seeker among us this morning and every skeptic can understand what it means, and I actually want to spend some time preaching on this so we who have been believers for days or months or years will have a much greater, fuller understanding of our deep need for communion and our great privilege in doing this holy act together. There are five words that I'm going to use this morning that summarize the great act of communion that has been done already with hundreds of millions of people today. The first thing it is, it is a place of remembrance. We stop and we remember, we think on the most significant thing that has ever happened in human history and the most important thing that has happened to us as individuals. We remember Jesus' willing death and his willing and overcoming resurrection. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul wrote, For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And see, this is incredible. We don't just remember because we want to go back to some golden age that we wish. No, no. See, remembrance at its core biblically is you remember the most significant things. And so that significant thing can form you and change you in the present. It is remembrance with purpose. The community remembered the death and resurrection of Jesus that had only happened 50 plus days at this moment. But not only is it a place of remembrance, the second word is this, it is a place of communion. We say that word so easily in church, but think about what the word means. This is a place and an environment where we are really with Jesus and each other. See, the Bible says right in Genesis, it is not good for us to be alone. It is not good for us to live as solitary people. And this is an invitation into communion. And whether you believe it or not, the Bible says that Jesus hosts that meal every single time. And it is in that simple moment that we declare and experience and know God's grace and his peace through Jesus and the Spirit. See, there are guaranteed places of Jesus' presence and power throughout the Scriptures. The written word of God is guaranteed. God will always speak if you open his Scriptures. The Bible also says this, and it's clear, God literally inhabits the praise of his people. When the church gathers together to sing and to give, God inhabits that space. It also says in the scriptures, Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, I'm with them. Well, communion is also one of those guaranteed holy places of encounter. The juice and the bread are not Jesus. They're just symbols. They don't turn into anything. But let me say something with authority. I guarantee you that our master Jesus by the Spirit is at every table that we come and he wants to talk to us and meet us. It is a guaranteed place of remembrance. It is a place of communion. And this is so important. Communion was done and devoted to because it is a place of ongoing forgiveness. You know, when Jesus was here on earth, he was famous for eating. He was a foodie. Did you know that? Like, really, look, all he did most of the time was eat and pray. But what's very intriguing when you read the Gospels is this. Jesus kept taking people to Jack Astor's who were the wrong people. He was always with a prostitute and a tax collector or a Roman or, or some compromise. Listen, here's the point. Aren't you still glad that Jesus eats with sinners every Sunday? Every time we come to the table, he still eats with sinners like us. And he reminds us that his mercies are new every morning. Jesus himself in Matthew 26, 27, when he instituted this, he said these words, he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. It is a place of communion and remembrance and forgiveness. And it is a covenantal place. I've shared this with you this morning. When I stumble out of my bed in the morning or off the ground, depending on how many children are in the bed with us, uh and I stumble into the shower, one of the very first things I do is I renew my wedding vows. Because I am a frail, broken, 41-year-old man. And so I know that I must continually remind myself of the covenant I've made with you as a church and my wife and God. And covenant matters so much in a culture that does not believe in it anymore. And so every morning I get up and I just say a simple thing. I renew my wedding vows. I'm going to be faithful to Joanna 
And many of us who have done church for so long do not understand that when we take communion, why did the early church do it? Because they were affirming their wedding vows. They were affirming their baptismal vows. Yes, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. Yes, I will fall in the rest of my life no matter the cost. No, I will not have an affair on Jesus. I will be faithful. It is a covenantal renewal. By the way, if you're a Christian, you haven't baptized How can you renew vows you're still not willing to say? Be baptized. Put the wedding ring on. And so we see this unbelievable unfolding where we have this covenantal and and all that, but it's more, it's anticipation. Because the scriptures are so clear that the meal that is given is going to stop one day. See, it is only a foreshadow. It's, a, it, it's, it's something that's not complete. Because in the book of Revelation, there's this thing called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's so amazing. One day, are you ready? One day, we're going to get to see Jesus face to face. Oh my goodness, can you? Oh, and we're going to have a meal with him. And we'll never take communion again. Because we'll be communing with him in that moment. And this is to remind us in a broken, screwed up world that, by the way, this meal is only the appetizer. The real one is coming. And so it's so important that you come with this perspective. And lastly, it's Eucharist. You're going, hold on, we're Protestants here. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation today. What are you doing? Let me tell you something. Eucharist just means thanksgiving. It means joy and grace. And it is Eucharist. Communion moments need to be somber and full of shouting and celebration. Do you know why? Because this is the place where the church is reminded through a symbol of forgiveness and his return and the great last meal and has a guaranteed place of meeting with Jesus. And it's the symbol that God called us and Jesus adopted us and the spirit is fighting for us. It is the place where we're reminded forgiveness is guaranteed. Like, it is a place of so much goodness. How could we not come to the communion table with great joy and thanksgiving and shout what the psalmist did? We enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. The early church rallied around the teaching of Jesus and the Old Testament so they would not go into the deep end wrong. They rallied around fellowship. They rallied around breaking of bread and then of course they devoted themselves to prayer. This is personal prayer, communal prayer. It's where we praise God. It's where we thank him. It's where we ask for things. It's where we repent of sin. It's where we forgive other people. It's where we ask God to deliver us from temptation we cannot handle, whether good or bad. And it's where we ask Jesus to deliver us from the enemy of our souls. It is the ongoing place where we learn to call God a good dad. It is the ongoing place where we actually partner with God in power to see the kingdom of God fall on earth. As Paul said in Ephesians 6.18, you pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests and with this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the saints. Devotion is what marked that early movement, our great-grandparents. But now we move to the second leg, we move to awe. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Awe is not a hyperbole word. It's a real word. It it wasn't just, oh, I think this is sort of cool. It was wonder. See, the early church knew Jesus was really alive because his spirit was really doing the same things. The whole environment, it's like God Almighty, the transcendent one, made himself palpably known for a season. It was like the Christians knew the Spirit was everywhere, and everyone who was walking around with them knew it too. There was an environment of habitual encounter with the living Holy Spirit. And in the middle of that marked revival-like experience, which lasted only for a period in the book of Acts, 
It says the church was marked by signs and wonders, the supernatural acts of Jesus now done through his people, healings and and exorcisms and prophecy in tongues, interpretation of tongues. It starts with the apostles, but as you keep reading, non-apostles, Stephen, Philip, Ananias, Agabus, start doing the same things. And then in Galatians and 1 Corinthians and on and on it goes, people are gifts. See, this is the beginning of gift-based ministry. Where all the work of Jesus, the love gifts, the word gifts, the power gifts are being worked out in the community and it is normative. They devoted themselves. There was this sense for a period of awe because the presence of God was so heavy and palpable. Spiritual gifts are being understood and being used, which is causing great excitement because Jesus is alive because in his name we're doing the same things. But then it moves to holy action. The third stool, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to any person who had need. One of the greatest evidences of the spontaneous outpouring of the Holy Spirit is exceptional acts of generosity. When God moves in any time period, money is always the place where his evidence is worked, work, uh, his work is evidenced the most. At this moment, property was being sold according to need. Now let me clarify this. This is not a commune from 1962, nor is this communism. This is not a wholesale disposal of private property. But this is a great generosity that swept the church and the holy attitude was rooted right out of the Old Testament out of the thing called tithing. Tithing was to the Jews, you bring the top 10% of what you've made and you give it to God. You give your first and you give your best and you always give it to him because he is so loving and kind and generous. Why would you not? Now there's no direct record of tithing 10% plus in the New Testament but it is celebrated, expected, and strongly implied. If you were with us a few years ago, we walked with Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount. And I love when Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. See, Jesus' teaching and the early church's demonstration here and many other places don't paint an easier picture, but a fuller, more committed, more fully devoted position. Remember what Jesus did with murder? Jesus comes along and says, do not murder the Ten Commandments. People are like, oh, I've never taken someone's life. He says, if you're bitter and jealous and angry in your heart, you've done the same thing. They were like, whoa. He comes along and says, oh, don't commit adultery. And all the guy, I've never done that. He says, oh, by the way, if you're walking down the street and you undress someone with your eyes, you're looking at porn, you're committing adultery. And it was like, I can't believe that Jesus comes along and says, hey, you know, tithing, so Old Testament, so last covenant. What do you feel you want to give? No, no. The heart is this. You come with this profound generosity because in the new covenant we have understood the love of God in such a level that generosity should actually mark us more than our ancestors, not less. And we give not out of duty and we give not just, no, no, we give because we cannot believe the generosity of God towards us. This week in my devotions I found this profound prayer that was so challenging about this. One person wrote this, would you listen to it? Covenant God, money is blinding. It's a demanding master. It's never satisfied. It's a thief of joy. Remind me that what does not possess me, I'm free to give away. Well, that's a line. Uncurl my grip on money and its clutches on me, springing open a generosity that shares with those in need. And I love this. I pray this in my true master's name. Amen. The description continues beyond this profound generosity and giving of money. It says they met in the temple courts and they met in homes. Now this, this, if you know context, just blows my mind every time. 
So they now start meeting by the thousands in the temple. Like thousands of people are gathering probably somewhere just before three o'clock for afternoon prayers and they're in the temple by the thousands singing to, talking about and celebrating Jesus the Messiah. This is the same temple 60 plus days earlier that Jesus was thrown out of. This is the same temple where the leaders haven't changed yet and they're the ones who ordered the execution of Jesus because he claimed to be equal with God and now the Christians are going back and having some worship mega fest experience right in the middle of the temple. And at the same time in these large gatherings, then they're breaking off into homes and they're taking communion and talking and being with each other. See, this has always been God's plan for the church. There should always be large gatherings and there shall always be small gatherings. This is the large gathering here. The small gatherings, what we call connect groups. I love what Pastor Lori keeps saying. If someone doesn't know where you are spiritually and someone doesn't show up within 24 hours when something bad happens to you, you are not connected in a small way yet. These both are the poles that actually produce this idea of full devotion. You need both, and it's day one, month one in our movement. But notice the little phrase that stuck out to me this week. It says, they met in their homes with glad, and what's the word? Anyone want to say it loud? Sincere hearts. See, this is actually the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. You see, this is actually the character side of the church. Think about it. They're thankful people. They had unity. Pretense hadn't touched them by this point. It does later. They were open-hearted. But what's the opposite of sincerity? Secrets. Grudging and grudges. Being envious, bitter, jealous, making division, lack of submission. See, what we see in these gatherings is a glad, joyful, praise-like people. And we see also in the middle of it, authenticity. It says that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And that means non-Christians too. People couldn't believe what was going on. And I love this. And God added to their number daily those being saved. Every day, Jesus just kept being preached and God kept calling and the Holy Spirit kept saving and being poured out. But by the way, in that little verse and in this little chapter, we actually see the heartbeat of God for what we call evangelism, proclaiming the good news. And if you haven't caught it yet, notice this. It's not done in one way. It's done in like multiple ways all at once. You just think about this. Day one, you've got preaching and large gatherings just like this. People are inviting their friends and because God inhabits the praises of his people, and the preaching is authentic, boom, people start getting saved. People start inviting people to their small groups. And people come into these small communities and they go, man, I, what happened to you, Frank? I've known you my whole life. They get saved. God's unusual palpable presence is so strong that people literally start getting saved because God is just so present. At the same time, signs and wonders, deliverances and healings are marking the power of Jesus and people are being saved. Real relationships are leading people to Christ. Transformed lives is proving the authenticity of our message because it's actually working out in everyday life. People are inviting people who are religious and non-religious into large gatherings and small gatherings. See, this This is what happens when a church is truly walking in the spirit from inviting someone to Alpha to inviting people to church because you know God is present to inviting them to your connect groups to sharing Jesus with your family or friends for your own life transformation as witness signs and wonders and healings. See, it's it's never one thing. It's all of it all at once and that's the power of God's church working together. I started my question, the, the sermon by asking, is there anything 
that could pierce or inspire a culture that is so tired because they've been inspired so much? Is there anything that can transcend the radical, person-centric consumerism? The answer is yes, and we're doing it right now. Let me just share a few things that I think matter for us as a family. I want to talk about growing expectations. You know, if you've done church for a while, you'll know that expectations are really dangerous in any direction. They can shipwreck people's faith. But let's just let the scripture speak for what it is. Do you notice this morning that every description I have just preached or read is a direct evidence of and a connection to the Holy Spirit? The apostle's teaching, he's the spirit of truth. Fellowship, who produces it? The Holy Spirit. Breaking of bread, he brings Jesus. Prayer, well, it's actually his prayer life through us and with us. Awe, well, that's the Holy Spirit's palpable presence. Signs and wonders, well, actually, that's his gifts. Where two or three gather in my name, small or large gatherings, well, who brings Jesus? The Spirit of God does. Uh, Gladness and sincerity, well, who produces that? Oh, that's the Holy Spirit because that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, People are being saved and God's doing it. Well, how does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit, it says, convicts us of sin reveals Jesus, draws people, calls people to Jesus, ushers them over the line of faith, and shows them the Father. See, Acts 2, 42 through 47, from beginning to end, is nothing less than a spirit move. So how should that affect us? And the answer is this. We should come with unbelievable expectation on Sundays. Unbelievable expectation to our connect groups unbelievable expectation even when we have our own personal devotion time because the scriptures are clear that we are about to encounter, hear from, and be changed by the Holy Spirit himself. Now this church in the last 24 months has had a huge shift, almost seismic, where expectation is no longer fought for, it's growing among us but there's work to be done. So here's what I just want to challenge all of us to do. Do you, if you're a Christian this morning, or even a seeker, stop before you come to church? And if you have children like me, you can't do this. You have to do this the night before. Or do you stop before you go to connect group? Or do you stop before you go to communion? Or do you stop before you open your Bible to do devotions and say, I know the Bible says absolutely that I am about to meet and hear and encounter the Holy Spirit. You say, well, John, why are you talking about this? Here's why. Because when a church prepares itself with holy expectation and comes ready The awe doesn't get stronger, but our eyes are open to the awe that's already available to us that we didn't see before. So when the church comes prepared and says, I know that whoever's preaching, whether I like their style or not, when the word, I'm ready, worship style, love it. No, I know he inhabits the prey. Communion, I know Jesus is going to meet me. Fellowship, I know where two or three. See, let me just again We need God to open our eyes to the awe that is available even to the smallest, most broken of churches because this is the place where God loves to hang out because we are his people called by his name and saved by him and for him. So I challenge us to prepare ourselves for appropriate encounter every week, even in February when it's terrible. Second. We as a church need to continue to commit 
to make the above vision of church a priority and just reality. Week in and week out, these are routines. Sometimes they're exciting and sometimes they're not. But holy routines are the key to a faithful Christian life. And here's the simple question. Are you willing? Are you open? Are you even present? You, you should probably see this by now. When we talked about being fully devoted in our community, you now see why we say get to church, get connected, join a team, advance God's kingdom. Like you see it, right? It's just this. This is the basics. This is the foundation. This is the fundamentals. This, this is like, you know, if you're, this is, this is what you got to do because this is how God has designed us. And so we just need to, in a very non-dramatic way, continue to say as a group of people, I'm committed to this. I'm, gonna get, I'm committed to devotion and I'm committed to awe and I'm committed to action. I'm going to keep doing this because I understand that this is the heartbeat of God himself. Not only should we have right expectations for encounter and not should we ought not only commit ourselves to holy routines, but let me just camp with one last place and it's what struck me this week. I've preached this passage 200 times probably. Gladness and awe. Uh, gladness, sorry, and sincerity. I, I opened my dictionary. I got old school this week and I just looked. Let me just say this to you. What does glad and sincere mean? Pleased, cheerful, delighted, and thankful. Is that you? Sincere, genuine, honest, truthful, heartfelt. Here's a critical one. Open. You know, I was interview. I was uh, been interviewing the elders lately. I don't know in this site and in the north. You know, we do elders prayer very regularly, and people come up and they talk about stuff and they get prayed for. And I talked actually to a lot of staff and a lot of volunteers. Interesting lately what we've seen when we've put all the dots together. A lot of people have been coming forward lately for healing in their marriages. Seems a lot of marriages are struggling, which doesn't shock me. Uh, we've got a lot of 30 to 45 plus people in our church who are now married. And so there's not a lot of shiny new things for us. Some of you, it's year one and you're struggling. Others of you have been years. Listen, that's one theme. And then I just want to paint the picture of the reality of where we are as a church. So we, every Sunday, gather here, and shockingly, we have four generations of people who make up this church. Churches that are usually growing only have one or two. So we try to all get along and be a family, <laughs> most days. Anyone want to say amen? Yeah. We're becoming more multicultural. Thank God. We fought for this for so long. It's so good. No, you should clap. It's a big deal, actually. There's lots of change. One third of this building is about to be blown up in January and we're going to rebuild this thing and we went multi-site. We celebrated our first year. We announced we're going to announce where the next site is. There's betting pools. Are we going east or west? You're going to give all that money to God, right? Um, starting new projects, new site, rebuilding ministries, shutting other ones down. So we got life and we got marriages that are struggling and we got change, we got momentum, we got conversions, we got multiculturalism, we got quadruple generationalism. All I want to say is to stay together at this critical moment, we need gladness and sincerity. And it will not be produced by us just pulling up our bootstraps. It's from the Spirit. So I just want to lead us in a very simple prayer where these two characters would mark this whole church. So if you're willing to stand, 
and pray this with me here in the north. I'd love you to do that. Anyone watching online, you can stand where you are. Like we always say, unless you're driving, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And I know some of you are comfortable with this and some of you aren't, but in the Bible, there are multiple postures of meeting God. And so could you just open your hands? Very simple. Father, Son, and Spirit, you love the church more than we ever will because actually it's your bride, not ours. This is your mission, not ours. And our simple prayer as a church first is that we would be Acts 2, 42 through 47. We've prayed that for 30 years in this church. I heard it when I was 15 here. Do it again. And not only that, oh God, in the midst of multiculturalism where we come from different backgrounds and different generations who think about different things and as we grow and more people come and we launch new sites, oh, make this church glad, thankful, thankful. And then make us sincere, open and generous because that work actually heals marriages too. So, oh God, I don't know how to articulate this sometimes as I preach, but I'm just asking for those two characteristics to mark our personal lives, our marriages, our community. And last prayer, oh Lord, for our church and every church in the region, start adding to our numbers daily those who are being saved. All glory to Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.